everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree. For more insightful content, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. Susan, it's so great to have you on KindredCast today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ariel. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, we're the lucky ones. So we'll get into BBG Ventures soon, which you founded with Nisha Dua, and you recently closed a $50 million round that Liontree is proud to have participated in. But first, I want to start earlier than that, because there's so much incredible history to your career and the work that you've done that brought you to BBG. You grew up in the Boston area, then you moved to California, went to UC Berkeley. Why don't you set the stage? You only went to school there if you cared about what was happening in the world. And what was happening in the world was two things, really. It was still the Vietnam War. And secondly, it was the beginning of the women's movement. So, you know, it was a a place where you could walk across Sproul Plaza and be recruited into any number of different movements. It was just a very fertile moment, I think. And it was also a time when my generation, which was the baby boomers, when we thought we were going to change the world. We really believed that the activism you were seeing at the time was going to have a lasting impact and that we were going to change the way government worked. We were going to change the way the economy worked. And some of those things happened, but most of us ended up then finding meaningful work in some other way. Do you believe that you carried what you found during that period of time into the rest of your career and your work? There's no question I did. There were definitely moments where I thought, wow, I'm just doing something for me. But in fact, every single role that I've had, I have brought elements of that college experience and sort of early adult experience as an activist into those roles. And certainly, I would say the biggest one has been a focus on the role of women and the challenges women face still in almost every area of life. I think that we have a dual presence in this world, right? We are the dominant consumer. We are responsible for 80% of all consumer purchases. And so we drive the economy in many, many different ways. But at the same time, if you look at the numbers around women CEOs, women C-suite execs, and certainly in the work I do now, which is venture capital, women get a tiny fraction of the capital that is invested every year. So it's an interesting dichotomy. And when you were learning at that time, were you reading Ms. Magazine? Were you openly declaring yourself a feminist? What were the things that influenced you from a media perspective? Look, I worked for an underground newspaper when I was at Berkeley that was called the Berkeley Tribe that was very much alternative culture as well as politics. But I lived in a collective of of people who were activists in many different areas We didn't call it a commune because a commune felt too hippie, didn't feel like we were really uh, having impact. We weren't all wearing the same color. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. The members ranged from 
the head of emergency medicine at San Francisco Hospital to two people who were running a newsletter about Latin American imperialism and multiple people who were working in either community control of police or childcare movements. And even Tom Hayden was part of this collective. So it was a range of ages and certainly areas of focus, but everybody doing work that we thought was going to have impact somewhere. And a few right. students like sense. me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think to the point you were making, you know, women have always been a dominant force as the consumer. And yet so much of the categorization has made it seem as though they are niche, even though they're over half of the yeah. population. And to, to the point you're just making about the intersection of other topics that relate back to gender, you don't have to identify as female to be a feminist or to care about gender issues in the way that they interrelate with each other. And so being able to actually understand how to weave those into other work elements is so critical. And, and something that I found really interesting in learning even more about your own career history is that you're extraordinarily entrepreneurial. When I talk to different people, you know, something I say is you don't have to have started your own business to be a founder in the role you're in. If you're having material impact in that role, some would say you have greater impact than a founder sometimes does in the company that they start. And so I'm kind of curious how you actually started to develop that mindset working for some of the biggest media and tech companies that existed and still exist today. Yeah, it's a really good question. My father was an entrepreneur. So he started as a corporate lawyer. And as soon as my grandfather died and he could get out of the law, he went to join what was then a small startup in Boston called Teradyne that became a giant company. He stayed at Teradyne for probably a decade and then launched multiple companies after that. So there was definitely some DNA that was passed along to me, but I will say that the era that I came into, nobody I knew thought about starting a company. It was just not what you were funneled into. We didn't have role models. So I think for me, what I saw was opportunities. I loved media from day one. And when I was in school, I worked, as I said, for an underground newspaper, but also did freelance copy editing and fact-checking for the few magazines that were based in San Francisco. It was much better than working in the school cafeteria. I actually left school for a job at a magazine, which was a magazine Francis Coppola had started called City that was, you know, his idea of a rival to New York Magazine. It was really fun. It was understaffed and not rules-bound because Francis was not that kind of person. We did a fair amount of great reporting, but it was also a beautiful magazine. It was designed incredibly well. And he gathered a group of people who were really, really talented. I came into the magazine as the assistant to the editor-in-chief, and that is the best job you could possibly have at that moment because I got to see everything, right? I got to sit in on all of his meetings. I, I got to look over his editor's letter before anyone else did. There were just a lot of things that allowed me to then become an editor myself. I guess the first truly entrepreneurial thing I did seven or eight years into my work in the magazine world 
I pitched a new magazine idea to Rupert Murdoch and his team. The head of the magazine group there had been a colleague when I was at the Village Voice, and I skipped over that, but I was the managing editor of the Village Voice for four years at a a moment when the Voice was really a powerful force in the city of New York. But he had gone on, he was the publisher there, he had gone on to become the head of Murdoch Magazines, and he urged me to do this. It was a magazine about the movies, and it was soon after VCRs had become ubiquitous in American households, which had completely changed the movie industry. You know, until that time, you had to either go out to the movies or you had to watch whatever was on one of three networks that week. So, you know, everybody went to the movies, but it was not something where they were smart about movies. And VCRs changed that because if you saw a movie by Marty Scorsese, you could go and rent every other movie he had done. And it created a whole new culture around movies that was fresh and fun. So we started a magazine to cover the movies, the movie industry, the business of movies, and Hollywood as a kind of college town with big man on campus and, and lots of fraternities and ecosystem that was fun to see and to read about. How did it feel to go from reporting on and around the industry and really understanding that in such a material way and then going actually inside of the industry and becoming a content creator and really greenlighting some of the most iconic shows for ABC, like Grey's Anatomy? I mean, you gave the world the Shonda Rhimes obsession. <laughs> um, was that a shift in mindset and focus around how you handled that? It definitely was. There was certainly a period of guilt where I felt like I had gone into Mm -hmm. the belly of the beast and I would never be able to go back to journalism. That's actually turned out not to be true for a lot of Mm -hmm. people. They've gone back and forth. Mm -hmm. And I could argue that it makes you a better journalist to really know an industry from the inside. But it did take me a while. And it also took me a while to get good at it. I think that you can cover great art, great films, great novels, whatever it might be, but really understanding how they're put together, understanding the architecture of a good television show, for example, really takes time. And it takes reading a ton of scripts and learning how to differentiate between a script that's actually a great story and has great characters versus one Mm. that is written by someone who has a fun style and is a great read. But those can be very deceptive. And Mm. that took me time. I think that learning the difference between good and great and learning which writers could deliver on a consistent basis, those were things that took years. It was a really fun period of time because it was when broadcast television still mattered. You've shifted lanes in many different ways where you bet on yourself. How do you reinforce yourself in those moments? One of the things that I've realized over time is that I'm at my best when I'm a little scared, that I do better work when I'm still learning. One of the things that would often drive me to move on to something new was feeling like I've got this. I know how to do this. That's definitely why I ultimately left the magazine I started. But it's a delicate balance, right? You don't want to go into something where you are 
genuinely not equipped to succeed. But at the same time, I think going into something where you know what you bring to the party, but there are things that you still need to learn. You're a beginner again on some level. And that, I think, drives a kind of ambition and excitement that can be incredibly fertile. The belly hunger. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a little bit of being scared, right? It's the, am I going to be able to do this? And I've got to work that much harder and I've got to listen harder, all those things. And you're still making connections, those aha moments where you think, ah, I didn't realize that, but that is critically important to this. It's definitely something that I've loved over time and that helped. I will also say that I don't think I could have gotten away with dropping out of college and just moving forward today. I think there are much greater demands for a deep understanding of your sector and what drives it, that dropping out of school as a first semester junior is just not going to get you there. I also think there's a much greater demand for MBAs that the number of people I know who don't want to go into finance, but they understand that having an MBA is going to allow them to build a company with a different level of confidence than if they didn't have that. Yeah. But I do think your point about leaving to work as the assistant to the editor-in-chief, sometimes that's a lot cheaper than business school. That's true. You know? like you, <laughs> yeah. so now seeing the progression to the point that you just made about when broadcast mattered, Every media company has a plus sign. Everyone is fighting for the streaming wars. Most consumers don't actually understand the legacy business that a brand might be attached to. Um, They just have that direct relationship and they want the most frictionless one. And obviously, we just saw even the announcement of Amazon and MGM, AT&T and Discovery. As an observer, where do you think ABC is now in the content race? I think that the broadcast networks in and of themselves, don't matter. They are on some level studios that produce content that becomes part of a Disney Plus or a Hulu, or for that matter, an Amazon or Prime. But I don't know a single human being who watches a television show day and date when it comes out. So Mm -hmm. we may still have broadcast TV shows that we are loyal to. I know plenty of people who still watch SVU and you know that's been on for probably 20 years now, but they would never watch it. They don't even know what network it's on. And they certainly don't know what time it's on or what day it's on. So I think that the era of watching ABC or watching NBC is over. The people who still watch are very old and just have not gotten over those habits, but they're dying off. So you can see it in the numbers every year, right? They go down and they have been going down since well before I took over primetime at ABC. We were already in that downward swing and that was 2000, 2001, right? So this is a a long time coming. Does it make it so there's kind of two models? There's like the HBO where you're making smaller, bigger bets 
And then there's Netflix where you're just making a lot of content and you have an understanding that maybe it'll eke out similar to HBO. Are we sort of over producing? Are we making too much? Are we giving the consumer too much and reducing the value of the content that exists? I don't think so. I don't think there's ever too much content. The great thing about this moment is that there are so many people who are making tiny, inexpensive documentaries or feature films for $150,000 that 20 years ago would have had no place to go except to an auditorium in a local city. And they get access to an audience. It may be the long tail of an audience, but it's still an audience and some of them break out. So I think there's never been a better time to be a content creator. And I would say that on every level, whether you're doing it for YouTube or for TikTok or for ABC or for Netflix, this is just a great moment for being a filmmaker, a television maker, a content maker of all kinds. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, TikTok really is much more akin to the new YouTube than yeah. comparing it to the new Facebook. And I think that creators are just understanding that um, there's that emotional resonance that you can make in a faster way. And that will lead back to longer form content over time. Yeah. So did you ever consider starting your own studio? No, I didn't. Definitely. I had a complicated exit from ABC because I got caught up in a I would say, a management swirl. And I lost my job to a guy who had been running the ABC studio. And at the time, Bob Iger said, we'll set you up with a production company. And it infuriated me. It was not what I wanted to do. I wanted my job. <laughs> but as a result, I left. And I actually took the summer off and really tried to understand what was changing in the world and what was gonna be important going forward. And among other things, I joined the board of the Martha Stewart Company. I had known Martha for a long time. I was deeply impressed with what she had built and particularly what she had built at a certain stage of her life because she had a whole other life before she started Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. And she had gone through a horrible year where she had been indicted and then ultimately convicted, not of insider trading, but of obstruction of justice. And so I thought it would be an interesting time to be on the board. And over three, four months, I got to know both the brand and the situation well enough to accept a CEO position there. So that was the next role that I went into. We had a television arm we had a big magazine group at the time, and she had merchandising, and that really interested me. So that trifecta really got me to think differently about how I could use my old skills, many of them. So it was many, bringing yeah. together several things I had done before. Right. I don't want to gloss over that experience or guilt, but I do think it bridges well into some of the work when you founded BBG because Martha is a great example of someone who's always understood that themselves as an individual has a lot of IP to give and that there are so many ways to build that 
over time and continue to reinvent with the consumer, which I think has been amazing to see over the last few years in addition. But I know you did bring that business back to profitability at a time when I think there was a lot of curiosity and spectacle, but the underlying aspect of the business is really strong and the consumer is still wanting that curiosity and that type of content. And so I am wondering, you know, you go off, you work with Nisha, you get $10 million, you're supported predominantly at the beginning by AOL. You have this entirely, they were our loan LP. Entirely, your loan LP. And you have this history of advising and then really stepping in to help businesses, obviously very much around trend forward on the commerce side, but what made you say, okay, I want to completely go into this leap of just investing in female founders and not doing it within AOL, but actually saying, we're going to go out and do this on our own. Right. So I will say that Tim Armstrong, AOL were critically important to our being able to do this. We did not have an investment background. We were operators, both of us. Nisha was the first person I brought into AOL when I joined the company. From day one, we were talking about the fact that there was this kind of growing wave of female founders who were starting companies, particularly back in New York City. So I think New York was a perfect kind of melting pot for female founders because there are so many different businesses and sectors that call New York home. So you had a lot of people coming out of companies where they had sector expertise or coming out of B-School with an idea to fix a problem that they had personally faced. And that was really our thesis going into BBG Ventures was that if women are the dominant consumer, and that was true across e-commerce as well as all the things I had been doing in earlier parts of my life, certainly in being early adopters of social media and far more active on social media, it made sense to back founders who intuitively understood that end user, especially since the rest of the VC world was essentially ignoring them. And that's what we went to Tim Armstrong with, was this idea that we're not going to be a strategic VC for you or a strategic fund, but we are going to give you incredibly valuable intelligence on how consumer behavior is changing. And that's what he bought into and said, okay, we'll put up the first $10 million fund. He and AOL were fantastic partners. They really let us do what we thought was right. It was a very fertile moment for this early female founder ecosystem. And we were able to invest in a lot of companies that have now become household names. We did two funds actually with the AOL as our loan LP. And then during that second fund, AOL sold to Verizon, who by the way, have been incredible partners too, and they are LPs in our third fund. But it was clear that we needed to spin out and to really launch a more typical VC fund that had institutional investors. And that's what we did. We left in 2019. We did a first close in Q4 of 2019, and then COVID hit. Happily, we had closed half the fund at that point so we could start investing but we had to take about six months off from raising because every LP, every 
pension fund and fund of funds and all of the people who really put money into the VC world were very focused on their current investments and trying to figure out what this was going to mean for capital needs going forward. I think, you know, what the pandemic saw for many of us is this acceleration of trends that were already on the forefront. And to your point about investing in founders who are dealing with more of the burden at home, their understanding, the empathy of the family of circumstances that affect commerce in every single day and every single way, but maybe aren't always framed that way. It gives your portfolio the potential advantage to make changes based on those trends in a way that's going to empathize and understand. I mean, one of the investments in your portfolio, Alula, which supports individuals who are living with cancer, there's over 20 million in the US alone, I found to be such an incredibly smart and overdue company to exist because how many people are dealing with grief, particularly coming out of COVID or those around us who are sick or might pass and really having a space in this entire conversation, nothing that you've been so open and nothing you've said has come with shame or guilt. And I think that's important in all of these categories that we're talking about. So I am curious how you find some of these founders and even with a platform like that, how you made that choice for that investment. And the first thing I'd say is that I think doing this has also helped us to evolve our thinking about where we should invest. And COVID has just kind of reinforced that because... We did make some investments in our early funds in companies that were dealing with first world problems, things that were really fun and were getting a lot of consumer attention, but weren't necessarily going to change the world. But increasingly, I think we're focused on founders who are solving problems that will impact millions of people, many millions of people. One of the lone good things about a pandemic is that it does lay bare what's broken. And certainly some of the areas that we had started to invest in health and wellness, the future of education, the future of work, all areas that became much clearer during COVID, both the opportunity and also the need became clearer. So Alula was one of those companies that came out of that moment in time when it was becoming clear that there were many, many, many people who were deeply challenged to get healthcare resources or to feel cared for outside of their treatment. And I think that's what the founder of Alula realized. She is a cancer survivor. She was diagnosed with a rare form of lymphoma when she was in B school. She realized a couple of things. One was that more than half of her costs were for things outside of her treatment. So we forget about the things like transportation and childcare and dog walking and all the things that you may need to purchase, whether it's a wig or it's skincare or things that are going to make your treatment tolerable. She had to use Dr. Google for all of these things at the time. And it felt to her like it was a crazy situation that her advice and the products that she purchased were really coming from her doing a search. So 
she and 20 million people, as you say, were out there doing the same thing. She really felt like there needed to be a place where you could get trustworthy information, both from experts and also from people who had been through it, and also a curated marketplace that would allow you to purchase the things that were important for you to have if you were doing immunology or important for you to do if you were having chemo. Also, just to have 24-hour nurses on call so that if you had a question, if you were worried about something, you could get through to someone who knew. That's what she's building. It's a powerful business. Very. And, and hits the point to what you were saying, which I know we also feel strongly about around really finding companies that believe in conscious consumerism that are pushing forward a frictionless experience, but that are also caring about the greater world that they're participating in, not only because it's the right thing to do, but also because the consumer today demands it. And when you build that trust and relationship, you will have a greater experience over time with that brand. Yeah, I so believe that. We invested in a company, this was pre-COVID, we invested in a company called Blue Land that has developed new form factors for household cleaning products and for personal care products that save you money, save you space, but most importantly, make you feel better about your consumption because they eliminate single-use plastic. They sell you three bottles to start with that you keep forever, and then they send you refills that are tabs, essentially, that you put 20 ounces of water into it and it turns into Windex. Just that understanding that there was a growing consumer base out there that was concerned when they looked into their cabinets and saw 30 bottles was a great aha moment. And this founder did the research mm -hmm. that was needed to really figure out how to create form factors that would deliver a product that was at least as good as the leading product in the space, but that could be shipped for almost no cost and didn't demand a gazillion plastic bottles in production. So right. there are definitely changes that are taking place. I think you're absolutely right that consumer values are changing and that's impacting the kinds of companies that are going to be successful going forward. I was really yes. struck this morning reading the New York Times. There was a story about all the banks having to answer questions for Congress and I think each of them had to answer a set of a half dozen questions. All but one took the opportunity to really talk about not just what they did as banks, but also their belief in racial justice, racial equity, corporate responsibility, climate change. And that would not have happened five years ago. This is a very, very interesting moment where I think every single large company has been forced to think differently about their role, that they are trying to make money, but they also have to be corporate citizens and to recognize that there are things that need to change. Yeah, as a founder myself and as someone who has done a lot of work with Gen Z, I mean, most of them will tell you if they feel like they have an identification with a brand, it's because they feel like they're buying their voice back. And there is no bridge between mission and ideology and consumer purchase. It is all one and the same and you wear it every day. And then it is a sense of pride or you use it every day or you consume it. And 
One thing I am curious about is because you've talked about the evolution of insights and sort of intelligence over time. How do you see the fund's responsibility to share potential insights with the founders within the fund? And how much are they working together for collaboration or growth opportunities? Or do they mainly work independently? I would say they work both independently and as a group. So we're still a young firm, but we launched a founder Google group that is deeply active. And they really communicate primarily through email to each other, but they ask for advice back and forth on a constant basis. And sometimes it's about, I'm looking to hire the world's greatest brand marketer, but more often it's about how do I deal with X or Y? So fairly recently, there was a really interesting conversation going on about how do I let go somebody who was an early team member who has a lot of equity and who I now realize is not up to the job now that we have grown to be a a series B company. There were a half dozen people who answered with, I've been through this, here's what I think, or give me a call, I can tell you what I did. So that's really something we've enabled as opposed to something we drove. We've just hired someone to run what's called platform in the VC world, but it's really to create a set of both content and also events and services for our founders that will help them succeed in early company building. And it's definitely a very important part of our role. They learn as much from being exposed to each other as they do from a call with us. We've touched upon the creator economy throughout the whole discussion. Did you also invest in Mighty Networks? Yes, we did. Yeah. How do you create that separation between individual and business as the creator economy pushes forward individual brand over the notion of business? I think the biggest opportunity as an investor is really the platform side of this, giving creators the tools and the platform to be able to build their businesses because there are just millions and millions of people now who are solopreneurs. They are doing something, they are building something on their own, and very, very few of them are gonna turn into a Martha Stewart. But in aggregate, they're a huge business. That's why we liked the Mighty Networks model. We look at a lot of companies that are doing something like that for this class. I think the whole 1099 worker space is very fertile right now. We started looking at this probably three, four years ago based on reading research that said that 1099 workers were going to be the majority of the workforce by the middle of this decade. That's only been accelerated by COVID. So that includes the creator economy, but includes a whole lot of other people too. We think about gig workers, yes, but so many service providers who are doing something, they are creating a business, could be a catering business, it could be a landscaping business, it could be a home makeover business where they are either the lone employee or they are the leader of a band of three, four freelancers who help them to actually execute. 
I talked to one woman when I was diligencing a company recently who set up a business to clean Airbnbs. There must be, I don't know, 100,000 of them around the country. That was not a job 10 years ago. But I think that shift from people going to work for companies and thinking about that as being their career and their life to people thinking about building something themselves, not necessarily something venture-backable, but building something where they're the boss, whether that means that they're the only employee or they've got a couple of people working for them. This is creating a very different, I think, set of opportunities and set of needs for, for us to think about. Well, I think that's getting into what we talk about sometimes around this idea of what will remain responsibly public versus private and what are these innovations around? I mean, what you're talking about is like, yeah, there should be a new almost small business association and there needs to be a better platform that's allowing these individuals to understand the inner workings of what's going on around the country together. I know we're running on time, so I'll I'll kind of bring this to one of my last questions. You've been a part of seeing things get acquired and adopted and then that name might not live on, like what guilt was able to accomplish but the trends that it started to create and the habits are still here. How do you advise founders in thinking about, particularly right now when there's so much emphasis on a unicorn outcome, be responsible and fiduciary while also understanding that maybe your brand value as a name might not exist in a hundred years, but the thing you're doing right now could. That's such an interesting question. When you're dealing with founders that you've invested in, we invest in companies that we think can be unicorns. That doesn't mean they all will be. That doesn't mean that even most of them will be. But you don't go into a venture capital investment thinking that this is going to be a nice, responsible small business. That's a different kind of investment. And we need those too. But venture capital is looking for high growth companies, high impact companies. The other side of the question you're asking is how do we enable many, 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 many more people to have a shot at becoming a Martha Stewart by giving them the tools and the platform so that they can do what they do well without having to think about building something for themselves. And out of that will emerge I don't know whether it's 10 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 Martha Stewart's over time, but it is definitely the fertilizer for people who do have this creative instinct, who do have all the stuff to create a great brand. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, thank you, Susan, for being on KindredCast today. You've been truly wonderful to get to talk to and for everyone to hear what you're up to, which is really exciting. And I know Lion Tree is proud and excited to see that growth and change with you. Well, we love having you as an LPE. You've been incredibly valuable already, and it's been not that long. So I hope we can follow up on this. Lots of good ideas came out of it. Yes, absolutely. That was amazing, Susan. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. 
Listen to Kindred Cast on Sirius XM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the Sirius XM app. 